Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Joining us now, Mona Mahajan, Senior Investment Strategist at Edward Jones. Mona, I'll move on and move on quickly. Ben Laidler of eToro joined us to kick off 2022. He's looking for a fourth straight year of double-digit gains after three of them, after a gain of 27% on the S&P last year. Mona, I understand you're looking for gains, but not more of the same. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks, John. Happy New Year. Um, look, I think... The good news for investors is this bull market probably does have some legs. Uh, but what we're calling for is an era of moderation in 2022. So for us, that means not only moderating economic and earnings growth, uh, moderating inflation to some extent, uh, moderating Fed policy support, but it also means moderating returns. So we do expect S&P returns to be more in line with earnings growth, which we see as single digits this year. Um, but expect a little bit more volatility. You know, as we get, as you noted, in the fourth year of this tremendous bull run uh, for the S&P, we probably will get more normal levels of volatility pullbacks historically that's meant one to three corrections in the five to ten percent range um, but the good news again is that those uh, bouts of volatility or pullbacks could actually offer opportunities to maybe add to or diversify risk Mona a very important question here as you mentioned return total return or less than total return is the dispersion of return that we saw in 2021 the Financial Times with a superb summary of hedge fund underperformance uh, that we've seen does the dispersion of return continue yeah, you know, look, if you look at the S&P 500, uh, the, the top line or the headline doesn't really tell the full story of what's happening underneath the surface. 2021 was a great example of that. Uh, we had a rotation into value as, you know, the vaccine rollout happened early in the year. But then after that, we saw a rotation back into growth, a rotation perhaps back into value as, as the Delta uh, variant waned. But towards the end of the year, we actually saw a little bit of defensive moves. We saw defensive sectors like uh, healthcare and staples uh, take a leadership role in the last month of 2021. We expect a little bit more of the same this year. You know, we do expect the year to begin uh, perhaps a little bit more strongly uh, driven by the value cyclical rotation. We do expect at some point we will get another reopening 2.0, a little softer than what we saw last year. But as the year progresses, uh, we would definitely recommend um, having a more balanced portfolio. You know, as, as the year progresses and comps get harder for value uh, and growth slows a little bit, perhaps still above trend, uh, we would expect areas like growth, like defensives, uh, like those quality names to really pick up the mantle. And so a more balanced approach to portfolio management this year, uh, we think makes a lot of sense. Uh, keep in mind, you know, the, our old friend Tina does come back into play. There is no alternative. Um, you know, investors, as always, are putting new money to work, where do they go? Um, well, in an environment where liquidity is waning, uh, they're looking for large liquid markets. And the U.S. equity market does come front and center once again, at least for now, until yeah. the global story picks up. Mona, do you get the sense that basically a balanced portfolio is the way to go and that, frankly, just owning the index continues to be the best bet at a time when the rotations happen uh, and it's unpredictable when? You know, I think 
Investors that have owned the index uh, have done well over the last three years and will continue to do well this year. To Tom's point on active management, you know, it hasn't panned out, uh, you know, it hasn't outperformed and, and all investors are looking for some alpha. And so, yeah, in our view, owning an S&P 500 index is part of a strong balance portfolio. And certainly that um, index ownership uh, will help you outperform over the long run. And so certainly that's part of a portfolio. Uh, this can be, you know, complemented by certainly parts of active management that that perhaps do give you outsized exposure to a value se sector or a growth sector, depending on where your, you know, underweights and overweights are. So it's important to have a combination of both. Um, but, you know, certainly we are in favor of having some exposure to index, uh, index ETFs, index management as well. Mona, always awesome to hear from you as we kick Thanks, off 22 John. and look ahead to the year ahead. Mona <clears throat> Mahajan there of Edward Jones on the equity market. University in Kroll. Megan Green joins us uh, to give us a first look into 2022. Megan, thank you so much for joining. I want to frame out the many uncertainties we have into the boom economy of the United States of America. Greg Vallier quotes Atlanta GDP now 6-7%, buoyant GDP in America. What is your belief in our ability to sustain and to surprise a better economy than many people predict. Yeah, so on that front, Tom, I actually think our conversation around growth and inflation in the U.S. will look fundamentally different in nine months from now, uh, from how it looks right now and from how it looks towards the end of last year as everyone seemed to be jumping down the Fed's throat for being behind the ball, allowing the economy to overheat, driving up sustained inflation. I think that could be exacerbated in the short term because of the Omicron variant. I think supply chain, chain disruptions could be exacerbated. But looking over the next six to nine months, actually, I, I see a number of risks to growth in the U.S., whereby we'll still be growing by well above potential, but, but growth should look weaker this year than it did last year, certainly. One reason is that we're facing into a significant fiscal drag. That was already going to be the case if we had passed Build Back Better uh, for next year in particular, because a lot of Build Back Better is, is backloaded, not front-loaded. And even if we get individual pieces of legislation passing pieces of Build Back Better, again, that will be backloaded. So we'll mm -hmm. see a fiscal drag uh, going into this year. Also, I think a lot of our growth in the second half of last year was driven by inventories as companies were restocking. They're only going to do that for so long. And I think that this year we'll see destocking, which is a headwind for growth. And then finally, linking it to Ian Bremmer's top risks, I think a Chinese slowdown is a pretty significant risk, not least of all because China right. has a zero COVID policy that I think will be really difficult to pull off in the face of more transmissive variants like the Omicron variant. And so Chinese authorities are certainly pressing on the gas pedal in terms of fiscal and monetary policy. But I think there is a fundamental commitment to things like common prosperity, taking moral hazard out of the property market. And so I don't think that authorities are going to fundamentally reverse those, those two uh, priorities and, and go ahead and pull on the same levers they have in the past to prop up growth, namely fixed asset investment in the property market. So right. while I think China will stop slowing down as much as it did last year, I think a slower China poses risks for demand, not only for the U.S., but also for emerging markets. <clears throat> 
And Megan, you have an earned expertise at the transatlantic view. Your academics in England, your academics here uh, as well. How much right now is Jerome Powell central banker to the world, and much more specifically, central banker to the EU in the United Kingdom? Uh, I think that Jay Powell and the rest of the FOMC are really primarily focused on what's going on domestically. And so while there are repercussions, of course, for Fed policy elsewhere, they're not taking into account much what's happening in Europe uh, and also in the UK. Um, that being said, there will be repercussions. And so while the Fed is going ahead and tightening uh, and, and uh, tapering already, uh, the Bank of England might also see some tightening the ECB, on the other hand, will probably keep policy loose for much longer. So there will be some monetary policy divergence with implications not just for inflation, but for currencies as well. The dollar should strengthen relative to the euro. Um, and, and, and the EU will be importing disinflationary pressures uh, if, if Fed policy is tightening faster than the ECB is. Megan, there's an idea right now in markets that the Omicron variant will accelerate inflation and will actually accelerate Fed, Fed rate hikes. How much do you buy into that, given that it will also likely slow growth, at least in the margins? Yeah, so it all depends on how long this spike lasts. If it's actually going to be as short as, as the South African data suggests, then I don't think that the Fed will end up accelerating policy in order to address the Omicron variant. Um, yesterday, I looked at a bunch of the high-frequency data that comes out, looking at Apple Mobility data, open table bookings, uh, TSA security screenings, and actually, it looks like the impact of Omicron on demand has been fairly much. That being said, it's only been dominating uh, for about a month, and that was, of course, over the holiday period. Uh, and so people could have decided, you know what, we're just going to have a, a better Christmas than we had the previous year and ignore this. And the demand hit com could come from now on. That's yet to be seen. On the inflation front, I do think that the Omicron variant will affect supply chains, not only because uh, workers won't be able to go to work in the U.S. and also along the entire supply chain, but we've already seen factory closures in China with a, a zero COVID policy off the back of the Omicron variant. And so in the first quarter, I think we could see inflation continue to rise. But, but going beyond that, I think not only because of the fiscal drag, the destocking, the slowdown in China that I mentioned suggests that growth should be lower this year, but also just statistics, the base effects suggest that inflation should be a bit lower as well. And I think those yeah. supply chain disruptions should start to, to alleviate towards the second half of this year. And, and so in, in nine months from now, I think while the Fed might see uh, more alarming inflation data coming out in the first quarter, by the second half of this year, I, I think it, inflation should abate. I should confess I'm a paid-up member of Team Tram Transitory on this front, even if the Fed has dropped that term. Uh, I don't think towards the end of this year that we'll continue to be so alarmed about higher inflation. Well, it does matter, though, where the inflation comes from. And there's this idea that perhaps it's going to shift from supply chain disruptions and labor market disruptions to a wage-driven, a rent-driven type of inflation, which will be really exemplified by the savings rates going down and people having to go out and get a job. How much do you expect that to be the dynamic of inflation and actually encourage the Fed to raise rates more heading into year end? 
So I think that uh, there are legitimate concerns to worry that higher rents will reset this year and feed it through into inflation. But when it comes to the labor market and a wage price spiral, I actually think part of the reason the labor force participation rate uh, is lower now than it was before the pandemic is that a number of uh, hourly service workers are, are waiting to figure out, they're waiting on the sidelines to figure out how they can get into higher wage, higher hour jobs. Um, and at a certain point, uh, they, they'll have burned through their savings cushion and will end up having to capitulate and jump back into the labor market. Now, uh, debit card data from JP Morgan, for example, suggests that might start to happen in the next couple of months. Um, so we'll wait and see. But if that does happen, then actually, even with the Omicron variant, uh, keeping some people home because they're afraid going to work will get them sick, uh, others will end up having to jump back into the labor market. And that should, uh, should um, alleviate some of the labor supply shortages that we've had. Um, I also think we've seen wage hikes um, over the past year, so there have been wage pressures, uh, but that needn't be inflationary if we also see productivity growth. And so that is one of the upside risks I see uh, for the outlook actually, is that we've had even more productivity growth than we expected because companies have taken the opportunity to automate and digitalize. And therefore, even with higher wages, you won't drive inflation higher. Megan Green of the Kroll Institute and, of course, the Harvard Kennedy School as well. Some things out, out front and center, and our next guest, of course, leading the charge. We've been thrilled at the support we've had from virologists, epidemiologists, and outright just plain doctors during this pandemic. And giving us great leadership is Amish Adalja, the Johns Hopkins at University. Dr. Adalja, I want to talk about the mystery of the moment. It's a mystery for Mayor Adams of New York. It is a mystery for the President of the United States. And it's a mystery for the woman that lives three doors down from Lisa Abramowitz trying to figure out what to do next on COVID. What is the timeline forward of this variant? What does the research show of what to expect one week out and three weeks out on the glide paths of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths? What we've seen from other countries, and we have to see if this is extrapolable to the U.S., is that the Omicron variant takes a very quick a, a very quick tour through a country. It's not something that lasts for months the way Delta does, that it comes in week intervals rather than in months. So two to three weeks seems to be what it takes for it to peak and then to rapidly decline. Maybe because, not, not because it's infecting everyone, but because it's infecting those people who are most susceptible to get infected, those people that are out there and then everybody else starts to change their behavior and then it collapses. That's what people are predicting will happen. Maybe by maybe the next couple of, of days to weeks, we, we should be able to see if that pattern holds. But it is going to cause a lot of disruption in its wake because many people get infected and we have to worry about hospitalizations, even if they're lower with Omicron being at least of a magnitude big enough for some hospitals that are already kind of at capacity to get pushed over the edge. Speak of our understanding of its virulence. If I do the easy math of 300,000 dead at a given rate, or I look at a normal flu of 40 or 50,000 a year dead, speak of the relative virulence of Omicron. So it's probably about half of what Delta was in terms of its ability to hospitalize and kill based on what we're seeing from uh, other countries. 
but it still is likely a little bit higher than influenza. And you have to also take into account the, the transmissibility. Because Omicron is much more transmissible, even if it has a lower case fatality ratio, if it infects more people quickly, that could still end up being a, a wash in the end that the same amount of people get infected because the attack rate is so much higher. But what we do know is that, yes, people tend to be hospitalized, less less oxygen, less ICU use, and, and I think that's good, but it still may be too much for the system to handle. Dr. Adalja, how long are people contagious? Most people are contagious for maybe about five, five or so days. That's the average or the median contagiousness of time period. So there are some people that are contagious for, le contagious for less, maybe two or three days, and some people more, maybe 10 days. And that's what we were trying to do with changing the, the guidelines for isolation and quarantine, realizing that a one-size-fits-all way of thinking about this doesn't actually work. And you could precision guide it by using antigen tests to see when someone goes negative. But the contagiousness is clustered in the very first uh, part of infection. We knew that from case control studies, looking at contact, contact uh, tracing, seeing when people got infected, and it was always clustered in the first half of illness. Dr. Dalja, let's say we are moving into an endemic phase of the pandemic, which you said probably happened a while back. What should the guide be for workplaces in order to get people back into the office and back into rotation? Which aspect, which test, which quarantine period should they really be looking at? For organizations, I think that they could use antigen tests because they're trying to make sure there's not transmission in their workplace. So that means trying to exclude people who are contagious. So I think they could do daily antigen testing for people. And when people get infected, stick with maybe a five-day default isolation period and then have rapid tests to kind of precision guide when that can come off. And then you can use masks as you need to in that situation. But if you're using a lot of rapid tests, if you've got a fully vaccinated workforce, I think you're in a good position. But what's happening is many organizations have zero tolerance for cases. And if you have zero tolerance for cases of COVID-19, there's no path into opening your office because there's always going to be cases there. So you've got to find a way to come up with a sustainable approach that you're not getting out outbreaks in your office, but that you know that there's going to be cases and you can't shut down, go to virtual every time, just like schools and universities have to do the very same thing. Doctor, they don't just have zero tolerance for cases. They also have requirements for a PCR test, not just a rapid test. Can you explain to us the usefulness of that? After someone has been isolating for five days, they've had a positive case. Is a PCR test useful in the weeks afterwards? Absolutely not. It's actually the wrong test to be using. They should be using antigen tests because PCR positivity can go on for maybe 12 weeks and it doesn't correlate with anybody's contagiousness because there may be viral debris that's taking some time to clear in someone who's fully recovered, not contagious, and the PCR is going to continue testing positive. So that's an incorrect way to do it and it's going to artificially disrupt your office workplace much more than if you actually use antigen tests or use time-based saying maybe 10 days or just 10 days without any tests. That would also be better than using PCR tests. PCR tests should not be used for a screening of asymptomatic individuals. That's not what they were designed for. It's the wrong test that's giving you the wrong answer. Doctor, thank you, sir. That's exactly what they're being used for in some cases right now, as you know. Dr. Amish Adoucher of Johns Hopkins. Right now, and as well understood as we saw Ian Bremmer with Elizabeth Economy yesterday on China, that Dr. Bremmer, like a magnet, uh, attracts qualified people to the Eurasia Group to generate their top 10 risks for any given year. This year's nuanced, brilliant list includes 
Iran. We get an update from Henry Rome, who is with Eurasia Group, Henry Rome of Cambridge, Henry Rome of his journalism at the Jerusalem Post, gives us the immediacy of the moment. Henry Rome, what I know is there's worries about drones in the air flying in, I believe it's to Baghdad, in danger. Give us the immediate right now of drones and the danger of drones from Tehran. Sure. Well, good morning and great great to be here again. I think what, what we've seen over the past day or so uh, with the anniversary of the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, of course, from a couple of years ago, uh, the Iran-backed militias uh, in, in Iraq flying these explosive drones at, at bases that house U.S. forces. Now, I think the real kind of risk here is, is, is the kind of ever-present one that, that you get U.S. forces killed or, or, or injured in some of these attacks and then pressure on the Biden administration to retaliate, to try to uh, show that there's a cost for this kind of activity. Now, there's, there's a lot of ambiguity with drones like these about whether they're ordered from Iran or whether these are the actions of uh, the kind of local militias. But I think the, the concern overall is real. Henry, help us with our stereotypes. We are all molded, certainly of my generation, by 1979 and permanent damage of our relationship with Iran. Give us the update. What is the number one thing Americans get wrong about Tehran and all of Iran? You know, I think the the number one thing is that, you know, despite that image kind of seared in, in our collective memory, the Iranian leadership today uh, is 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 quite rational in the sense of making cost-benefit calculations when pursuing its policies. They might not have the same kind of way of looking at things that that we do certainly, and in different ways of assessing costs and benefits. But when you ask questions like uh, why and under what circumstances uh, would they ramp up their nuclear program? Why uh, or under what circumstances would they seek a nuclear weapon? What is their policy around the region? You know, I think it's easy to get caught up in a lot of the, the rhetoric, which is fiery, is, is explosive. But I think when you look at the actions, at least over the past several decades here, you see a pretty consistent through line of, of, a, of a fairly sober weighing of, of costs and benefits. And I think we're, we're seeing that today uh, with, with the ramp up on the nuclear program and the fairly imperiled uh, nuclear talks. Henry, there's an issue of this being a regional uh, problem, and then there is the more geopolitical risk that Eurasia groups seem to identify in their latest report of risks. When you talk about a potentially less calm year for Iran, where there can be a conflagration of some of these tensions, what's the broader read-through to the geopolitics of 2022? Yeah, so, so so I think we, we were a bit lulled um, to a false sense of security last year, given the kind of on-again, off-again nuclear talks. I, I think the, the the real key to stability in 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 the region are these negotiations. And the negotiations aren't aren't going well. I think the kind of real um, pivot point here will be likely over the next month or two when it um, most likely becomes clear that a deal is is out of reach. You have the U.S., you have Israel, the Gulf states, and of course Iran, all kind of pivoting to their respective Plan Bs, and those Plan Bs are all different. And I think that as you see Iran start to realize its 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 goals of increasing leverage against the U.S., the Israelis increasingly concerned about what is an unconstrained Iranian nuclear program, as well as concern from the U.S. I, I think all of those pressures collide 
this year, and that's why that's why it made it onto our list. Henry, how much does this lead to higher oil prices? I know you're not an oil strategist, but usually that's the direct market read through from this type of tension. Yeah, you know, I think that's right. I mean, over over time, I think this is a a kind of factor that 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 will push oil prices <clears throat> higher. Of course, there's there's a whole number of factors that that go into that. But I think on the kind of bullish side, this is certainly one of them, especially if you get into a scenario uh, that 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 we talk about that starts to look like a conflict that I think we're um, going to have conversations like this again and again about will the Israelis attack or won't they attack? Will there be airstrikes on Iranian nuclear facilities or won't they? And if that sounds a lot like 2012 uh, conversations, that's because it is. We're, we're essentially back to a position where it, where it appears diplomacy is not uh, going to succeed at this present time and that there are more aggressive options are being contemplated. And, and anytime you talk about uh, military action uh, in the Gulf region, I think that that immediately has a pass through to concerns about the stability of supply. Henry Rome. Henry, thank you of Eurasia Group. Thank you very much. And thank you to Eurasia Group and Ian Bremer over the last 24 hours working through those top risks again for 2022 this time. It has been extraordinary what we've seen in terms of action and particularly in electronic vehicles, electric vehicles, I should say, in response, a competitive response to Tesla. Joining us now from Dearborn, and that can only mean the Ford Motor Company, uh, Kamal Galatra joins us right now. Thank you so much, sir, for joining us with your leadership at Ford Motor on electric vehicles. I am thunderstruck by the response to the manly F-150 pickup truck. It does appear at 200,000 units. People want to buy an electric F-150. Tell us how important price is to that decision. At 39,000 plus, has that been the trick to get that pre-order you've got? Well, good morning, uh, and thanks for having me. Um, price is one factor, I would say, but I think it's the compelling nature of the product uh, that's really important here. Uh, this product uh, has, uh, when we were doing research with our customers, uh, they, they loved the acceleration of it, they loved the torque it brings in, they loved the payload of 2,000 pounds. Uh, it's, it's great driving truck, it's incredibly fast. You know, truck owners love torque and torque uh, is what this electric vehicle brings. It's more than 70, 770 feet pound of torque. All of that capability, it's for, built Ford Tough. Uh, you know, it's one of the vehicles that's been in a leading uh, high selling vehicle for us, you know, more than, uh, more than 45 years in a row, uh, leading its segment. Uh, so combine all that into a very compelling product proposition with a starting price of under 40,000, 39,900. 74 is what's made this uh, such a compelling proposition right. for our customers. I, I am, I'm so glad, Kumar, you brought up the physics of this. The first time I felt the modern torque of electric vehicles was an electric cab, Chinese made, I believe, in London. And I, the pull down the road was absolutely extraordinary. Explain the new torque, the physics of a new torque versus our stereotype view of a Tesla. 
so the torque, uh, you know, especially for truck buyers, is incredibly important. And if you start with an internal combustion engine, we're all used to what's, what's the traditional torque curve. As you start pushing on the gas pedal, the torque starts building up and eventually peaks at some point and then sort of uh, stabilizes at that point. In electric vehicles, there are two key things that are different. The torque is instantaneous. The moment, so that buildup that's in the, in the gas vehicles is not there. It's almost instantaneously, you push on the, the, uh, the pedal, accelerator pedal, and it's instantaneously there. The second is the amount of torque that's available is incredible. Uh, for, for this vehicle, it's gonna be over 770 pound feet, which is just, just an incredible number. And that's really important for our customers for, for not only for driving dynamics as well as for towing. Uh, and go ahead, sir. Well, no, Kumar, is, is the issue here selling it to consumers or is it actually producing enough to sell to consumers? Because that's been the real hang up when it's come to auto sales over the past 24 months. Yeah, you know, between the, the COVID crisis, the chip crisis, uh, the entire industry has struggled uh, to produce that at the levels that we were producing. Uh, so you take that crisis, those two twin crises, and then as we're transforming the company to go from internal combustion engines to battery electric vehicles, uh, gauging the demand has been a real trick. Uh, we thought uh, we were setting up our factories appropriately for the demand, but as soon as we revealed the vehicle, we had to nearly double the capacity to 80,000. And that's why today's announcement is so important because even after we increased capacity for this vehicle to 80,000 Lightnings, the, the reservations continue to come in at record pace. And today that's why we're announcing that we're going to now increase capacity in this plant to 150,000 lightnings. And that involves then, you know, all so, the entire supply chain, the batteries, the motors, the controllers. So given the fact that you have increased production, that you have seen such robust demand, and that the potential of uh, additional stimulus from the federal government and a broader base of electric vehicle manufacturers, do you think that electric vehicles could reach 10% of the American market by the end of this year? That's, that's difficult to say, like you said, because it'll be both, not only demand, uh, based on the demand our, we are seeing for our vehicles and, and the rest of the industry is seeing, it feels like the demand is certainly there. But the question will be how quickly can we all of us execute to build capacity to meet that demand. And that's what we are very busy doing by mm -hmm. within the next 24 months. We expect to get to about 600,000 uh, battery electric units globally. And that's before our bigger investments that we're making in Kentucky and Tennessee, uh, both for battery, batteries as well as assembly come online because they don't come online till about 2025. Uh, Kumar, thank you so much. I've got about 14 more questions, including charging stations, but we'll do that another time. And, I, and Kumar, I just got to tell you, Lisa Abramowitz looks good on the streets of Manhattan in a Ford F-150 pickup truck. I just think that's, that's a natural there as well. Kumar Galatra with us, of course, running the shop for Ford Motor Company, Dearborn, Michigan as well. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight 
from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.